Indeed, all praise is due to Allah, and as such, we should praise Him, seek His help, and His forgiveness, and seek refuge in Him from the evil which is within ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds. For whomsoever Allah has guided, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray, none can guide. May I be a witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad is the last messenger of Allah. The topic for this evening focuses on spirit possession. Before beginning, let me clarify that I'm not the world's most prolific writer on Islamic topics. This is a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, 
Spirit possession is a topic which I have written on in the as a topic for my thesis, uh, Exorcist Tradition in Islam. But at the same time, this does not make me an expert in dealing with uh, illnesses that people may be faced with. Because I just want to say this right at the very beginning because um, research into this topic and an understanding of the ins and outs of it doesn't necessarily turn one into now the exorcist, you know, where people will come flooding for treatment, etc., etc. So please, uh, those of you who have your illnesses, don't assume that I'm going to be able to help you. Uh, Allah is the one who helps those who seek his help, and as I will explain in the course of my lecture, the methodology of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is the methodology that we will have to follow in order to treat our illnesses, spiritual, physical, intellectual, etc. Now, as I said, the topic is one addressing the issue of spirit possession. And by spirit, uh, we're speaking about the jinn. Because from an Islamic perspective, we do not believe that human spirit can affect human beings. Uh, this is uh, Christian tradition, Hindu tradition, other systems because of their ignorance of the world of the jinn have attributed things that are taking place from the world of the jinn to uh, actions of human spirits after people have died. In the traditionally Christian as well as Hindu uh, Buddhist beliefs uh, focus on the person who dies in, in times of um, uh, tragedy, some, some tragic circumstances, murder and stuff of things where the person who dies in this way, they believe that the spirit continues to wander around the earth and it may affect people uh, and, and this is the, the, uh, the basis of what they perceive to be spirit possession. But from an Islamic perspective, when a human being dies, they leave this world. The spirit enters into the world of the barzakh and that spirit has no effect on the living. There is no contact between human beings and the spirit of the dead. So from an Islamic perspective, the only possible source from for a spirit possession, people to be affected by spiritual forces, is from the agency of the jinn. There have been people historically among Muslims who have denied that this takes place. Uh, most of those who have denied it are from a, a group of rationalist philosophers which we shall refer to as the Mu'tazilites. But for the vast majority of Muslim scholarship, uh, the issue of possession has been a recognized fact. And the evidence which is used, of course, from the Islamic perspective, starts with the Qur'an and the verse from Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 275, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ الرِّبَا لَا يَقُومُونَ إِلَّا كَمَا يَقُومُ الَّذِي يَتَخَبَّطُهُ الشَّيْطَانِ مِنَ الْمَعْنِ Those who devour interest rise up 
like one stumbling from Satan's touch. And the leading scholars of Tafsir, like Al-Qurtubi, Ibn Jarir, Ibn Kathir, all of them have pointed out that this verse is evidence for the correctness of those who hold that human beings may be possessed by Shaitan and the world of the jinn, devils, devils in the same general. But we have from the Sunnah the statement quoted by Sophia, one of the wives of the Prophet in which she said that Satan indeed flows in the bloodstream of Adam's descendants. This is one of the most commonly quoted texts. But there are also a number of, of narrations, among them though that which is narrated by Ya'la ibn Murrah, in which he said, I saw Allah's Messenger do three things which no one before or after me saw. I went with him on a ship. On the way we passed by a woman sitting at the roadside with a young boy. She called out, O Messenger of Allah, this boy is afflicted with a trial. And from him we have also been afflicted with a trial. I do not know how many times per day he is seized with fits. The Prophet said to her, Give him to me. She lifted him up to the Prophet and he placed the boy between himself and the middle of the saddle, opened the boy's mouth and blew in it three times saying, In the name of Allah, Bismillah, I am the slave of Allah. Get out, enemy of Allah. Then he gave the boy back to her and said, Meet us on your, our return to this place and inform us how he has fared. We then went. On our return, we found her in the same place with three sheep. And he said to her, the Prophet said to her, How has this son fared? She replied, By the one who sent you with the truth, who has not detected anything unusual in his behavior up to this time. So, this is among the hadiths which are used to indicate the realities of, of possession, because if no possession actually took place, then it would imply that the Prophet Muhammad was involved in some act of folly and deception. You know, what was the point of opening this boy's mouth? Who was he communicating to when he said, you know, get out from the of Allah? So, this is among the clear evidences which we utilize those who hold the position that the jinn may possess human beings. Now, when we look at the reasons as to why would the jinn, why does the world of the jinn interfere with the world of human beings? Why would it lead to possession of human beings? Uh, first and foremost, we have to understand that what we may perceive as being possession, where a person may fall in a state of fix, a person may seem to have changed their personality, a variety of different things, you know, which have been identified as the signs of possession, that these do not always indicate actual possession. In fact, from my own research, which was quite extensive, you know, in the terms of field research, I gathered material from the Sudan, from Egypt, from Arabia, Bahrain, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan. You know, I traveled in a number of parts of the Muslim world gathering information from those uh, Muslim scholars, etc., who were involved in exorcism and claimed to exercise according to the Qur'an and Sunnah. Of course, there are those involved in all kinds of other things that didn't bother because that field would have become extremely vast and I already, you know, recognize that the only acceptable methodology 
methodology would be by way of utilizing the Quran and the Sunnah as the basis. At any rate, a sampling of all of the various uh, scholars or exorcists that I came across in the Muslim world uh, and discussing their, their own experiences clearly indicated to me that the vast majority of cases that, that came before them were not actual cases of exorcism. And actually even in comparing the data which came from Christian sources because the Christians have been actually involved in exorcism from the time of Christ. You know, and uh, especially amongst the Catholics, I mean, they have a very strong uh, tradition of exorcism. And what we can find uniformly in both Muslim as well as uh, Christian exorcists is that the vast majority of cases are psychological or biological. There is only a small percentage, someplace around 10 to 15 percent of the cases that are brought before people involved in this where we're actually dealing with cases of possession. And to indicate the biological sources, uh, scholars have quoted a particular hadith uh, which is found in Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim wherein one of the uh, companions, Afaid Nabi Rabah, had, had uh, pointed out a woman who in the time of Prophet had come to him and asked him to pray for her. And when the Prophet inquired as to what the reason was, she explained that she would be overcome from time to time with fits and would cause her clothing to, to fall from her and expose herself. So she asked the Prophet to pray for her and have it removed from her. So he said, if you wish, be patient and you will have paradise. And if you wish, I can pray to Allah to cure you. She said, I will be patient. Then she added, but I become uncovered, so pray to Allah that I not get uncovered. So he prayed for her. So in this hadith, this particular narration, uh, scholars like Ibn al-Qayyim and others now pointed out that this addressed a, a, a biological cause. If this had been a case of possession, then Prophet would have used the common method that he used in dealing with other cases of possession, where he would instruct the possessing spirit to leave the uh, individual. And um, this methodology also, we can say, is found in the, um, the gospel, in the description of Jesus, though we don't accept the gospels as being truth. But there are some uh, narrations in there which seem to coincide with uh, information that we have, accurate information we have uh, from Islamic sources. And that people who were possessed were brought to, to Jesus according to the text of the Gospels and he instructed the possessing demons or spirits to leave, you know, similar to the way in which Prophet Muhammad would instruct them. Now, if we leave that biological or psychological side and we go over to the actual cases of possession, Ibn al-Qayyim has said, in describing the reasons, evil spirits mostly gain control over those having little religious inclination and those whose hearts and tongues faith has deserted, those whose souls are desolate of the remembrance of Allah 
and of the formulas for strengthening the faith. When evil spirits meet a man who is isolated, weaponless and naked, they are easily able to attack him and overcome him. This is a general description of the state of people who tend to be overcome by uh, the spirit world. Ibn Taymiyyah identified three main forces or causes among the jinns. He said the occasional possession of man by the jinn may be due to sensual desires on the part of the jinn, or even love, just as it may be among humans. A second reason was that demonic possession sometimes occur as a result of horseplay or jest or plain evil on the part of the jinn, just as evil and mischief occurs among humans for similar reasons. And thirdly, possession is most often a result of the jinn being angry with some wrong which has been done to them, that in some way human beings have accidentally harmed them and as a response to that harm, they may attack humans. And Ibn Taymiyyah pointed out that it's due to the ignorant and volatile nature of the jinn that their vengeful punishment of human beings, you know, go far beyond uh, their just deserves. Now, when we deal with possession, possession may be complete possession, or it may be partial possession. In the case of partial possession, we have in the Muslim world as well as in the non-Muslim world uh, a practice which is called mediumship. That is, cases where individuals become mediums by which one may communicate with the world of the spirit. Uh, the individual, male or female, who then identifies himself or herself as a medium would seem to be overcome and may speak in the voice of one's grandfather or one's mother dead, etc. And uh, this, in general, people in ignorance accept as being the dead actually communicating with them. This is a common phenomena in many parts of the world, even among uh, Muslims. However, the reality in, in such cases is not that the spirit world, meaning human spirit, are in communication with the living world, but this is a case where jinn, a jinn may possess this person and communicate through them, and that jinn may be the kareem of the human who dies. That is, as Prophet informed us, each and every human being, when he is born, is assigned an angel that prompts him to good and is also assigned an evil jinn that prompts him to evil. This is a struggle which each individual goes through throughout his life. There are promptings in the mind, in the conscious, and in the subconscious coming from both the world of the angels as well as the world of the jinn. And when a human being dies, the jinn that is assigned to them, the Qareem, does not die at the same time because the life of the jinn is longer. So that Qareem that was with the person who died remains in this world and may be the source of that mediumship, of that communication to human beings where we imagine or we think that the voice and the information which is being conveyed to us is being conveyed to us by one of our dead relatives who have died. 
In fact, it is that same Qareen, the Qareen will be able to give us information of things which are unique to ourselves and that person. For, for example, yourself and your uncle or yourself and your aunt or whatever, you experience certain things which nobody else knew about. And here is this medium communicating that information uh, and you, uh, you because this, this information is so private, it seems to you that this had to have been that dead relative of yours. Uh, the reality, as I said, is that it is from the Qareen and not uh, a human relative who has in fact died. Ibn Taymiyyah, talking about this phenomena, had said, the jinn usually communicate by either visions or voices with those seeking information among the idol worshippers, Christians, Jews, heretical Muslims, driven astray by the devil. The devils will often respond while taking the form of the one we thought while dead or alive. This frequently happens to Christians who call on those who they edify whether dead or alive. It also occurs to heretical Muslims who call upon the dead or those not present and the devils take the form of the one called upon. We also have possession which may be possession of objects. As we have partial possession of human beings, we also have possession of objects. Uh, Prophet was narrated by Ibn Abbas who said, when you go to sleep, put out your lamp, because Satan may guide something like this rat to a lamp and cause you to be burned. So the evil jinn may, may possess animals as well as objects. Uh, as, as in the case of a rat. Uh, in the case of objects, we have the case uh, mentioned in the Quran with regards to the people of Moses, السلام, when he went to receive the message from Allah and uh, sanity had them give their melted gold uh, and, and melt it down and make a calf and have that calf and as an idol for them to worship, the people of Israel did not fall in worship to that calf simply because it was placed before them. But as Allah mentions in the Quran, that the calf moved. The calf said move. When the calf communicated, this is what convinced the people, the followers of Moses, the Israelites, that this calf was in fact alive to something which was somehow God or whatever that they would worship. And of course for us we understand that what is taking place here is that the jinn has entered into the, the, um, the, that body, the calf, the statue, and communicated in this way to full people. And we've had, you know, recent occurrences of this in 1997, you know, all over the, the world, uh, the, the Hindu god Ganesh, you know, began to drink milk. Uh, people had been practicing their pujas, their acts of worship to this god, this elephant head god, Ganesh, you know, in, in India and in wherever the temples are around the world for many, many years. And there was no special phenomena taking place. There was poor milk over it, etc. But on one particular day in the year 1997, uh, they found that the milk was going into the mouth of the idol. In India, as well as wherever the temples were. In London it happened, also in, in um, the Emirates where I was, uh, they, they, were, they found, they were 
pouring milk by the mouth of the idol and that milk was going in. Now, uh, scientists tried to give explanations for it, that it was by capillary action and all kinds of other explanations, but the reality is that these explanations really didn't hold water. The point is that at that particular instant, in different locations around the world, the jinn occupied these statues, started to imbibe this milk, giving the Hindus the impression that their God was alive, real. This was a miracle for them, convincing them of the uh, authenticity of their belief. We can also have uh, parts of possessions happening as in the case of Al-Hallad. Al-Hallad was a, a heretic, you know, from uh, many a number of centuries ago who has been elevated by some elements as being a saint. He was an individual who claimed that he was Allah. That there was no distinction between Allah and himself. And when he was taken before a tribunal and asked to recant his belief, he stood up and opened out his cloak and said, there is nothing inside of this cloak except Allah. His favorite statement was Analha. I am the embodiment of truth. And of course, Allah describes himself, Wahuwal-Haq, that Allah is Al-Haq. He says, Anal-Haq, he's saying, Allah and I are one. So, when he refused to recant his belief, he was taken and executed. His head was cut off. Now, according to the fables of the, of, of the, of those who have elevated him to the status of sainthood, they claim that when his head was cut off, as it fell and it rolled, it kept saying, An al-Haq, An al-Haq, An al-Haq, right? And for them, this was confirmation that in fact, yes, uh, this uh, individual, this deranged individual, was in fact a saint speaking the truth. But the reality, of course, is that if in fact this took place, we can understand that it would have taken place by way of the jinn speaking out to this individual's head, because surely that person being dead was not going to communicate with any of the living. The third way in which possession uh, may, or the jinn may affect our world, is that of what we call demonic visions. That is, where the jinn may take form, uh, which appear before people. This is common amongst Christians. You have, you know, many, many cases where they have seen uh, the Christ child, Mary, appears before them, these type of things. Um, we also have visions which are held by individuals, for example, who believe again, this belief in sainthood and all this type of thing, where they have believed that certain individuals who they will designate as Sheikh so-and-so, as in the case of Sheikh Nazim and his followers, they claim that he can be in more than seven places at the same time, and that his Sheikh was able to be in more than 14 different places at the same time. So what would happen is that he would be at home in, in, in Cyprus, and then some of his followers are saying, but we saw him in Germany, he likes to go to Germany, or they say we also saw him at the same time, the same day, in Mecca, performing Umrah. You know, so this is evidence that this man is, you know, somehow uh, some kind of super spirit individual who is so close to Allah that he deserves, you know, submission to. And so people submit themselves to him in ways which are definitely against the teachings of Islam. However, this phenomena, you know, has been identified by the scholars 
uh, Ibn Taymiyyah among them, to, to be well known in the past, uh, this same type of thing occurred. In fact, Ibn Taymiyyah even mentioned that some people had come to him and told him that uh, whilst they were in, in, in the process of, of doing Hajj, uh, they, one of them had hurt himself and he called out on Ibn Taymiyyah for his help. He called out to him, Oh Ibn Taymiyyah, help me at the time. And he said when he called out, he saw Ibn Taymiyyah appear before him. And uh, when he related this back to Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Taymiyyah informed him that this was not him. This was a jinn, jinni, you know, appearing, confirming his shirk. Because for him to call out to Ibn Taymiyyah for help, Ibn Taymiyyah is, you know, uh, thousands of miles away. He is there in Mecca calling out to him for help. This is shirk. To call on anyone other than Allah is shirk. So, those people who are involved in various acts of shirk, you will find among them uh, visions common to confirm their, their uh, faith of disbelief. There's also a case which I came across in Sri Lanka back in 1992 in which a young boy, he was some two and a half years old, he was born in a Muslim family, his name was Izan. Muhammad Izan was born in a Muslim family. And all of a sudden, he had this sort of illness, he was in hospital, short, briefly, he came out, he hadn't spoken. After this illness, he began to speak. And he began to speak in the language which was the language of the Hindus. He began to speak in the language, uh, the Tamil language, right, whereas his family was speaking uh, Sinhalese, right? And uh, he started to, to ask to go to a temple, and they took him to the temple, family took him to the temple, and he started to do the rites of worship before the idols, and he started to sing the hymns of the, the, the Hindus, their chants and their worship, etc. It was something really, you know, quite amazing. And this was documented by doctors, etc. They documented, it was very real, it was in the newspapers, front page news, and, you know, it was quite shocking. In fact, it reached a stage where people were making pilgrimage from India, from southern India, Tamil Nadu, making pilgrimage there to Sri Lanka to come to this board. They were bringing gifts and they were asking him, you know, their future. And even Muslims, unfortunately, got caught up in this. Many Muslims were coming to this individual and asking him to tell them their future and all this kind of things, you know. And uh, fortunately, one of the brothers there, brother by the name of Jajid Arif, uh, he had read, because I had been to Sri Lanka before and given lectures there, and he had read a book which I had written called The Fundamentals of Tawheed. And in it, I explained about this phenomena, the phenomena of what appeared to be reincarnation, right? Because this boy, uh, he was claiming that he was someone else. He gave a name, he gave a place where he died. When they went there, they found that yes, there was a boy by this name who had been killed in an accident, you know, and he was a Hindu boy. And here he was now claiming that this was himself and that his parents were so and so and so and these were the names of the parents, etc. So it appeared to be a case of reincarnation, which was belief shared by both the Hindus and the Buddhists. And then this case became so popular in Sri Lanka that even the president, Srimadasa, had, you know, made statements about it, you know, about this is showing that, you know, we're all from the same, you know, origin, whether you're Muslim or whether you're Hindu or you're Buddhist, you know, we're all reincarnated, we could have been Hindus in our previous lives or whatever, you know. 
So it was for him to use it as a means of uh, uh, what he felt to be uniting the people. And he even placed guards around the home of this family, you know, to make sure nobody disturbed this uh, process. In any case, as I mentioned, Jazid Arif had read my book, uh, The Fundamentals of Tawheed, in which I described this case happening in India before, cases of reincarnation, and explained how it was possible for the jinn to implant ideas in the minds of children. Prophet said, dreams are of three types. There are dreams which are from Allah, good dreams, true dreams. Dreams which are from the ramblings of ourselves. You know, we read something, we see something, and all of a sudden we see it back in our dreams. And then dreams which are from shaitan. Shaitan may come and put ideas in people's minds. You know, sometimes you wonder, uh, a thought comes to your head and you wonder, where did that come from? You know, I wasn't thinking that kind of thought, and then here you are thinking it. You know, and this is why Prophet ﷺ told us that we're not held to account for our thoughts. Because evil thoughts may come into our heads, you know, without our intention. And if we were to be held to account for every thought that came in our mind, we would be in very serious trouble. So Allah being most merciful does not hold us to account for the thoughts that we have. And what happens instead is that we are only held to account when we speak on the thoughts and we act on it. So what happens then is that a jinn may put, like the same tarim may put the thought of that, uh, in, in the mind of that child, uh, images, visions, or concepts where the child expresses these things thinking it is his or her own, not aware that it came from another source. In any case, Jazid Arif, when he read this in my book, he took a local uh, Maulana there who had the title, they call him the Jinn Maulawi, you know, meaning that he was the person who was dealing with a lot of people who had possession, etc. He took him to visit this, uh, this uh, child and the family. And um, when he, he had a bit of difficulty getting there, but eventually he was able to get in to see the child. And the initial reaction of the child when, they saw, when he saw the, the uh, scholar was to run, to scream. Eventually they were able to get the child, hold the child down. He recited Quran over the child and the child stopped. Changed stopped speaking Tamil, reverted back to himself, and the whole uh, state that he was in left him. So, the issues of possession, whether partial or complete, uh, these are realities which we experience in our world today. Much of it serves to reinforce uh, shirk which is common in common practice in various parts of the Muslim world as well as in the non-Muslim world, mostly in the non-Muslim world, but unfortunately today amongst Muslims we find practices of shirk all over and as such you will find that objects, places, things uh, become possessed, uh, visions appearing before people, so that the various shrines like places like Ajmer where people are making pilgrimage in the thousands, you know, to uh, a, a grave, a mausoleum, and performing all acts of kinds of acts of worship at places like this, you know, which is in fact out and out shirk, they will go there and have all kinds of experiences. You know, people will go there with illnesses, etc., and they find themselves coming back feeling better and, you know, uh, miraculous cures, etc. Now, we also find 
as an aspect of, of possession and interference of the jinn, magic, even magic itself, you know, is a result of the agency of the jinn. People involved in magic are often in, or mostly involved in some acts of sacrilege, but the way in which magic actually affects uh, individuals is through the intervention of the jinn. Scholars of the past, you know, have identified this. Similarly, the evil eye, the evil eye, which is real. Uh, I know many, many times people, you know, in, well, come from uh, Western backgrounds, been exposed to uh, scientific teachings, etc. The idea of the eye, the evil eye, you know, is something that people tend to want to deny. But Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Ainu Haq. Al-Ainu Haq. That the Ain, the Ain, the, the evil eye is a reality. And he gave us uh, ways of treating it. But this issue of the eye, you know, as uh, Ibn al-Qaim had said, every possessor of the evil eye is jealous, there's jealousy which is involved in it, but not every jealous person possesses the evil eye. It doesn't mean just because a person is jealous automatically the evil eye is in, in, in effect and the people are being affected, but it is in specific cases and these specific cases are a result of intervention by the jinn. <clears throat> now in terms of exorcism, how do we treat those who are possessed? First and foremost, let me say that from an Islamic perspective, there is no such thing as an exorcist. You know, no such thing as, as a profession where a person becomes a professional exorcist. We have this in the Christian tradition, they have a position in the church known as the exorcist. A person gets special training for it and that's his job. In the case of Islamic tradition, it's people who are not taking on this as specific roles, as, you know, I am an exorcist, that's my job, people, you know, that's my nine to five, you know, I'm an exorcist. No. What would happen is that people would get ill, you know, through effects of, of the jinn, etc., and they would go to a local scholar, or they would go to, you know, their friends or whatever, and whoever, you know, felt a, a desire to try to help, they would seek to help them by uh, recitations, Quranic recitations, etc., and in this way, they were treated. The one point I'd like to mention here is that um, there's a book called Medicine of the Prophet uh, in which it is described that the Prophet ﷺ prescribed amulets. Actually, the term used is ruqya or ruqa. And the translator of this book, Khuli, I think his name is, he translates this as amulets. So it appears that the Prophet ﷺ is prescribing amulets for people, but this is a mistranslation. The ruqa or ruqya are incantations, recitations, things which are said over a person who may be uh, possessed. From, a, from an Islamic perspective, these recitations should be using uh, Quranic verses or it should be in statements which are intelligible. You have people who make amulets which are commonly known in the Indo-Pakistani uh, part of the world as sawis, where people make these little writings and things and, and they wrap it up and put it in a little case and you wear it around your neck or on your arm etc. 
When you take these things apart and you look and see what is written on them, you will find it has a bunch of lines and letters and numbers and these kind of things, and this is all considered in the category of shirk. This is not acceptable. These numbers which people have assigned to Quranic verses, saying Bismillah is 786, this is a common uh, number which people use, they will write it, 786, etc. Uh, and they believe this means Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim please know that it does not mean Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim 786 does not mean that at all. What they have done is they have given values to Arabic letters. And adding up these letters, they are getting 786. However, this same 786 could be used to create a sentence in which you are saying there is no God and Muhammad was a magician. You could write that out in Arabic and have it add up to 786 also. So please note that 786 has no special value, it does not mean Bismillah, and this use of numbers and, and letters to signify Quranic verses is nonsense. It has no basis in Islamic teachings at all. Uh, in terms of the treatment, and my time is running out, and actually there's a lot of material here. But anyway, I'll just try to shorten it down. Uh, in terms of methodology, what was the prophetic methodology? The prophetic methodology began with undoing charm. For example, in the case when magic or magic spell was cast on him, he was informed by angels that the person who did the charm was a particular individual, and he had made the charm and put it in the bottom of a particular well. So he sent Ali ibn Abi Talib to go and get this charm and take it apart. And while he was taking it apart, he recited the poles over it. So a part of the, the prophetic method, methodology is if one finds a charm in one's home, and there are people, unfortunately, in the Muslim world who are very much involved in magic. You know, um, people either because they want to get married, and, and there's a book on the market produced uh, printed in Pakistan and India, it is also called prophetic medicine, and it has, you know, all kinds of things that you can write down if you want somebody to fall in love with you, if you want to have children, if you want this to happen or what else to happen, you, you do this thing, you, you put it in water, you drink it, or you, you know, tie it and tie it on the person's door, or, you know, all kinds of foolishness, burn it, and, and all kinds of advice of what to do to try to, um, you know, creating these trials, putting it in people's homes and stuff of thing, right? So, if you find yourself in some state of illness or whatever, you find yourself uneasy and you find in your home some charm, what do you do? You take apart the charm, destroy it, you know, while reciting the Quran. The second method which Prophet used was that of addressing the, the spirit which possessed the person. You know, as I quoted before, you know, he, he would call out to the spirit, you know, saying, I am a slave of Allah. You know, get out or enemy of Allah. So the issue of addressing that spirit, uh, instructing it to leave, is a part of the uh, methodology of the Prophet Furthermore, the Prophet also invoked curses on the possessing jinn or interfering jinn. You know, he would hear, he, he, Prophet would say, "A'udhu billahi mink or "Al-anak bina'amatillah." You know, he would use these. Uh, phrases which is, may Allah curse you, I speak refuge in Allah from you, may Allah curse you. So this is part of the um, the methodology for 
trying to expel the possessing spirit, one may call on Allah's curse on that possessing spirit. The third step is that of recitation. Uh, recitations of Surah Al-Fatiha, this was done by the Sahaba. For example, Kharija ibn Asfalt had mentioned that uh, on his um, return on the, on the journey, he came across a man who was possessed and had been tied up in iron chains. And the family of the man had come to him and asked him if he had anything from Muhammad Sallallahu to help uh, treat such illnesses. So that companion recited Surah Al-Fatiha over him every morning and every evening for three days. And whenever he would finish the recitation, he would gather his saliva and spit off to the side, and the man eventually got well. So this, when he came back and informed Prophet Muhammad confirmed his use of Fatiha in this way. Now, this is a legitimate use of Fatiha outside of our prayer. Uh, there is another way what people tend to do if we're going to have a gathering before we start the gathering or at the end of each gathering people will say Fatiha and they go and recite Fatiha. Actually, this is not from the Sunnah. You know, we don't go and take Surah Fatiha and try to use it for anything we want to use it for. We have it in the Quran, we read it when we read the Quran, we read it in our Salah, that's it. We, to use it for anything else, we must have authority from Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You see, this issue of, uh, of utilizing the deen, it has to be, even for cases where people are possessed, etc., it has to be with confirmation from Prophet This whole issue of possession is not like an issue of physical illnesses, where when you are sick, you come to a doctor and the doctor will experiment on you. He thinks he has an idea of what your illness is, so he prescribes a medicine. If this medicine doesn't work, or, or if the dosage is not high enough, he'll increase the dosage, or he'll prescribe another medicine. And he keeps prescribing until one finally works, right? Once that one works, then he will, you know, make a note of it, and this becomes a part of medical tradition, that whenever a person comes with this particular illness, you use that medicine for that illness. Doctor and the doctor will experiment on you. He thinks he has an idea of what your illness is, so he prescribes a medicine. If this medicine doesn't work, or, he, or the dosage is not high enough, he'll increase the dosage, or he'll prescribe another medicine. And he keeps prescribing until one finally works, right? Once that one works, then he will, you know, make a note of it, and this becomes a part of medical tradition, that whenever a person comes with this particular illness, he use that medicine for that illness. Now, treating uh, those who are possessed is not in the same way. We cannot go there and start experimenting and doing what, you know, whatever works, you know. So you'll find, when you go into different parts of the Muslim world, people in dealing with possessed people, you'll find them doing all kinds of things. You know, they're tying strings around people's fingers and around their soles. Uh, they'll tie, you know, uh, knots in their hair. Uh, they will do all kinds of things. They tell you, okay, we're going to chase the gin up your body, you know, from your foot all the way up to your hair, and then it gets into your hair, we cut off the hair, we put it in a bottle, we set it on fire, and we burn the gin. You know, I mean, these kinds of stories, these kinds of fables, you know, people seem to get up and they get up and they feel they're well, you know, I'm, I'm okay now, you know, this thing works. Really. But what is happening here is that, you know, in medicine, whenever they're giving a, a drug trial, a new trial for drugs, they always do it with a control group. They take 10 people and they will give them this medicine. Then there will be 10 people who they will tell they are giving this medicine, but they are giving them sugar pills, right? They call it placebo, right? 
Why? Because what you're going to find is that of those 10 people who were given this medicine, which was in fact sugar pills, maybe 30% of them will get well. They will get well. So if the actual medicine is only getting 40% well, and sugar pills are getting 30% well, they say this medicine is no good. You know? If the medicine is working like 90%, and then you have a 30% for the placebo, you say, okay, you've got a good medicine here. What, is, what this is telling you is that if a person has confidence in their doctor, that confidence, that trust, can help to cure that person. Similarly, when the, the, you know, this exorcist, he tells you, okay, the jinn, we've taken it up to your hair, we've taken it out, we've got your hair, we're going to burn him. You know, this, the person's actually believing this thing, and in that case, where they're not actually possessed, you know, where they, what, what they had was a psychological problem, you know, or it may have been partially biological, then they cure themselves. So, what we're dealing with here, when we deal with the whole issue of exorcism, is that we have a methodology of the Prophet Muhammad. This is Deen here. The Deen is not subject to experimentation. So we cannot experiment around and say whatever works now becomes, you know, this is valid, I can use it. Uh, we have among the prescribed things Ayatul Kursi. Uh, the scholars of the past used it and found that it was very effective, you know, based on the uh, teachings of Prophet Muhammad in breaking spells which are on people. Among them, the, the Basmala. Bismillah, using Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, Prophet Sallallahu had said that you should place your hand wherever you feel pain in your body. If you're feeling pain in your body, it may not be a biological thing because a possessing a jinn that is partially possessed a person may cause uh, pain or they may feel something in their body. So, when a person has this, they place their hand on their body, they say this is Allah three times, and they say, أعوذ بالله وقدرته من شر ما أجده وأحاذره And this means I seek refuge in Allah and His power from the evil that I find and the evil that I fear. It is, you say this Allah three times, I mean actually the whole bunch of them are going to be saying now, and then you say, أعوذ بالله وقدرته من شر ما أجده أجده وأحاذره we also have the, the ta'awwud, which is just in general, seeking refuge in Allah. You know, as Allah tells us in the Qur'an, وَإِمَّا يَنْزِغَنَّكَ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ نَزْغٌ فَسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ إِنَّهُ وَالسَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ And if Satan touches you, seek refuge in Allah for verily to hear and know it. So, we have Aisha radiallahu anha saying, the Prophet ﷺ, whenever any member of his household uh, fell ill, he had pains, etc., the Prophet ﷺ is to blow over them and recite the Mu'awadatan. We also have the Adhan, reciting the Adhan. The companions at the time of the Prophet ﷺ have said that whenever the Adhan is recited, uh, the evil jinn will flee. And when it's finished, they will come back and interfere with an individual in his prayer. We also have a, a variety of prophetic prayers, but you know, unfortunately, time is running out further and further. Uh, I can just say that um, we can find in, in the um, in the bookstore, the book which I wrote called The Exorcist Tradition in Islam, all of the prayers are listed there. Uh, besides that, we also have medicines which Prophet prescribed. He prescribed the Adhuwa date, saying that the person takes these dates in the morning, neither magic nor poison will affect 
will hurt them. And also it's described what are known as truffles in English. And it's called al-kam'a in Arabic. That it's water, use of the water is a cure from the ayn, the, the, the evil eye. He also prescribed that a person, if a person had, you know, caused an evil eye uh, hurt to another person, he instructed the person who had caused it to take a bath and they, and they would take the water from that bath uh, or sorry, to perform ablution and he would take the water from the ablution, the water left over from the ablution and the person who was affected by the evil eye would bathe with it. There's also the step, which is a, a very dangerous step and we have to be very careful of, uh, that the person who may be possessed may also be hit. But the hitting, you know, has to be in a very controlled fashion. You know, it cannot reach the kind of extremes that took place, for example, in England, you know, about four years ago, where two peers in Manchester beat a young girl, 17-year-old girl, to death, you know. And they're in jail currently now for uh, killing her in the course of exorcism. The, the, when Prophet uh, hit somebody as he may have hit a child or hit a young person, came to them with it, you know, he'd hit them on their back, more like a pat on the back if you got something stuck in your throat, you get a pat on the back, you know. Not the practice, you know, of taking sticks and, and clubs and, you know, beating that person into a state of, uh, into a state of, of death or near death. Uh, in closing, I'd just like to say that we do have an issue that we have to address. The issue that Christians and Buddhists also exercise. People come to them, possess, they're exercised and they go away well. How do we explain this? If they're involved in shit, etc., how can we explain this process? Well, the reality is that when a Christian or a Buddhist calls on Jesus or on Buddha or, you know, makes statements of shirk, the person who is possessed, the, the jinn in that person will leave, not because it is forced out, but it will leave in confirmation of shirk to the followers. Because they see this person being cured, it appeared that they are cured by calling on Jesus or the scriptures of the Buddhists. But the fact of the matter is that the jinn is leaving, just confirming shirk in the minds of the people who are observing. Whereas in the case of a Muslim reciting Quran, the prophetic du'as over the person, the jinn is leave, leaving because it is driven out. You will also find Muslims who may call on Muhammad Sallallahu or call on some saint and the person appears to be cured. Again, that curing is like that of the Christians and the Buddhists, etc. It is not a true curing. So, in closing, I will just now say that for Muslims, uh, we have a variety of, of du'as, Quranic verses, etc. and practices which Prophet has given us in order to protect ourselves. Whether there are du'as to be said in the morning and the evening, du'as to be said before we go to bed, du'as we say before going to the bathroom, there is a variety of different du'as that are available in uh, books like the um, uh, Hasn al-Hasin, I think, uh, or Hasn al-Muslim, right? Hasn al-Muslim, which is the fortification of the Muslims, is a nice collection of authentic du'as, and it mentions in there most of the du'as which may be said, you know, to protect one from the effects of the jinn throughout one's day. 
I mean, even to the point the Prophet gave us du'as before husbands and wives come together, this particular du'a we say to keep shaitan, the evil jinn, away from the offspring. So it is for us to learn this prophetic uh, prescription. There is so much in the prophetic prescription that if we spent our time learning it, we wouldn't have time to get involved in the amulets and the other uh, practices of shirk, etc., which are being offered in many parts of the Muslim world today as a mean of, means of dealing with exorcism. We should not go to those who are involved in magic to deal with magic. Those who are involved in magic are involved in sin, are involved in kufr. Because Prophet said that whoever uh, enters into magic has entered into kufr. So the only way is to use the method that Prophet gave us and we also protect ourselves by utilizing the various formula which he gave us. And at the same time, when we, list, when we recite these formulas, we don't recite them in a ritualistic way, but reflecting on the meanings. And when we look into the meanings, we'll see that the meanings all involve putting our trust in Allah. Because ultimately, Allah is the one who cures. And we have to put our trust in Allah. It is not the person who recites over us or what is recited. Ultimately, it is trust in Allah and the help of Allah we overcome these things. So even a person who may do all their du'as, you know, recite all the things that they should recite, do everything that they should do in a day, it doesn't mean that they can never be affected. They can still be affected because Prophet Muhammad who was the best of us, was affected by magic. So it can happen, but the point is what do we do? Do we fall apart? Do we then turn to sources of shirk etc. to cure ourselves? No. This is just a trial and a test in our lives. We have to put our trust in Allah and He is the best to protect and the best to heal. You have bodyguards. Didn't you come across the hadith, if people gather to harm you, they will not harm you except what Allah has designed, has destined for you? And if people gather to help you, they will not be able to help you except what Allah has destined for you. Why don't you put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? <laughs> I'd like to thank, you know, whoever sent that, you know, as uh, well-intentioned advice. I can only say that I didn't ask for anybody does. You know, brothers who felt that they wanted to do security for the uh, speakers or for the gathering, that was their choice. I didn't ask for it. Questions? Well, actually, I will just try to deal with the questions that relate to the topic of Brother Bilal Phillips' speech, if you don't mind. And then if we have time, then we'll deal with some others. Okay, question. People who talk or laugh in their sleep, is that inspired by jinn? And uh, two, does uh, jinn possession or, or does jinn possessed person have epileptic sicknesses?
laughing or talking in a person's sleep, you know, is not a sign of gin uh, possession. And um, epileptic fits, which a person may suffer from, may be either biological, uh, which have to do with injuries to the head or you know, a variety of other injuries or imbalances in the body chemistry can lead to it, or it may be from the source of the jinn. So whenever we deal with any symptoms amongst people, and when and some of the questions are going to come, I look at some of them asking about the symptoms, how do we know when somebody is possessed, and what are the signs that indicate possession? Actually, the, um, uh, the book which I have written has gone into details, you know, identifying from different sources those who are involved in the field, you know, the common factors that they have identified. Uh, but the, the reality is that uh, probably the greatest sim uh, symptoms would be changes in personality, where a person uh, exhibits behavior which is vastly different from their norm and they will tend to shy away from religious things whether it has to do with prayer or fasting anything connected with the religion the Quran these type of things and um, in extreme cases you may find the person's actual voice changing where a person may speak with a voice which is not the normal voice that they normally speak with but again, as I said, some of this may have biological origin. That when we find somebody who is exhibiting strange behavior, etc., our first uh, response should not be, this person must be possessed. You know, because you find, unfortunately, many parents, as soon as, you know, children, children who are, for example, in this society, who are going to the public schools here, who are exposed with all, to all of these, you know, abnormalities in behavior, etc., which go on in public schools, and then our children come home and they start to exhibit some of these things, we, we assume, because this is not something we're used to in the home country, right, back home, back in Pakistan or Egypt or wherever, we're not used to children behaving in this way, that we automatically assume that it must be a jinn that has gotten them. You know, I mean, we have to be very realistic to look at the situation, you know, try to understand the situation that our children might find themselves in, and we have to take responsibility, you know. We have to take responsibility. What is happening to our children here in this society is a product of this society itself. I mean, what happened in Colorado, what happened in Alberta, you know, what happened also in England and Ireland, you know, these kinds of, 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 of uh, aberrations in behavior, etc., this is a product of the system, of a system which does not provide moral uh, guidance for youth. So when our children stray, we don't need to blame it on the jinn, we need to blame it on ourselves for not providing them with the proper guidance that we should through either Islamic schools and education, Islamic environment, we have to take responsibility and not try to blame it on the jinn. Question, Assalamu Alaikum. My question is, I have a brother who started working at the age of 18. I have a brother who started working at the age of 18. He was generous when family and friends came to him. 
He fell apart when he started drinking and, and lost his job. He only worked for seven years. He does not work now, uh, neither drinking. It is said, magic or evil eye happened to him. That's why he's unable to work. But when you sit with him, he is very social fellow and you cannot find anything wrong with him. He's now 48 years old, which means he hasn't worked for many years. If he was uh, 18 at the time, 25, since 25 to 48 he hasn't uh, been working. How do I help him? I am very concerned with his welfare. He does not pray though. Well, as you said, the person who's asking the question has said that this individual, while working, began to drink. Obviously, there is something that led that individual to drink. What we should try to find out is why did that individual begin to drink? Why that individual doesn't pray? And this is the foundation. Uh, the, the point is that Allah tells us in the Quran that, you know, if we turn away from Allah's remembrance, فَمَنْ أَعْرَضَ عَنْ ذِكْرِي فَإِنَّ لَهُ مَعِيشَةً دَنْكَمْ That whoever turns away from my remembrance will have a wretched life. This individual's life is wretched because he's turned away from Allah. So what we need to try to do is rather than try to exercise him, now we need to try to get him back to Islam. Because if he's, if he's void of prayer and his life is not praying, then you know, and Prophet told us that the distinction between the believer and the disbeliever is Salah, whoever abandons this has become a disbeliever, then what we have in our hands is a person who is virtually a disbeliever. We have to try to bring them back to Islam. After bringing them back to Islam, then we try to build them up. And inshallah, uh, with a proper Islamic foundation, then he will be able to get his life back in order with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Question. Do jinns reproduce? Do they receive revelations? Basically, what are the qualities? I have put several questions asking that. And also several questions asking this. Is there such a phenomenon as good jinns that help people? Okay, uh, in terms of the characteristics of the jinns, of course, we don't know uh, what they look like. They are not visible to us. If they enter into our dimension, they enter in forms that we know, either it's in animal forms or some apparitions or human forms, perhaps also the UFOs. These UFOs that people keep talking about, you know, uh, my view is that what is real of them is probably the jinn. Because we can be sure and have no doubt that there are no intelligent beings in, uh, in some other part of the galaxy. You know, some other part of the universe. There are no intelligent beings there. If, if there, there may be life in the form of vegetable life or animal life which is not uh, intelligent, having a choice between good and evil, because Prophet was the last prophet of Allah. If there were beings somewhere else across the universe that we ultimately were going to come in contact with, we would have been informed about them. Prophet told us about the jinn, Allah revealed a chapter in the Quran about the jinn, and they are invisible to us. So if revelation is going to clarify about the jinn, surely it would also clarify about other intelligent beings in the past universe. So we can just cancel that. But for those who believe that evolution is what brought us here, there is no God, 
for them it is a part of their uh, uh, we say psychological need to find other beings to justify our existence that if this happened by chance by evolutionary processes then this should also have happened you know in some other stars and some of the galaxies around it should also have happened this is logical if it happened here it should happen elsewhere to not find it elsewhere is to be put in a situation where obviously this is like a one-time thing, meaning it wasn't by chance, it means there was purpose behind it, there has to be God. They don't want to deal with that, so the whole of their scientific programs, space and astronomy, etc., all of it is focused on trying to find life in the universe to justify their belief that we are here by accident. Probably the greatest expression of shirk in our time. How can one be helped if he is possessed, but the possessed person is involved in bidah? Well, we have to start by clearing up the bidah. Because bidah and any other form of, of deviation becomes an opening and an invitation to possession, to corruption from the world of the jinn. So we need to clear up, you know, if the person is involved in bid'ah, then we first try to clear up those things either from his or her home or his, the area in which they live or whatever. We clear that area, purify the area, then we try to deal with the individual, you know, or we do it simultaneously. Question. Is it sure for someone to seek help to an exorcist? I mean, one who does not involve in shirk. No, it would not be considered shirk, uh, as I gave examples of companions of Prophet who treated those who were possessed. You know, as long as the, the treatments, the, the ruqya or ruqa, are involving Quranic verses or uh, statements which are themselves acceptable Islamically. It is perfectly legitimate. But as I said, it's not to go seek an exorcist, to seek somebody who would exorcise that person or yourself, you know? Because as I said, we really don't have exorcists in Islam. We have people, you know, individuals who have accepted, you know, to help others. Not as a profession, you know, nine to five, but, you know, if people come to them, they will read Quran over them, whether they're half of Quran, or they know a lot of Quran, the recitation is good, they are strong Iman, whatever, you know, whoever is approached like that, it is their duty Islamically to try to help those who are in need. Please explain the use of Zamzam water in exorcism and the use of du'a water in exorcism. By du'a water it means the, du'a, the water over which Quranic ayah is read and uh, blown upon. Well, we actually have no evidence for the use of du'a water, which is called here du'a water. We have no evidence for it. Prophet didn't do it. Companions didn't do it. It has become a common practice amongst people who are involved in exorcism in our times. But really, as I said, it has no foundation in the actual methodology of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions. And the use of Zamzam in exorcism, again, we also have no uh, example of the companions uh, using this or the Prophet Muhammad But we know Prophet Muhammad has said that Zamzam is for whatever it is uh, drunk. Right? 
So if a person were to drink Zam Zam, you know, asking Allah to help them, you know, overcome whatever has overcome them, it's legitimate. But uh, to say that it is a standard uh, article in the arsenal of the exorcist, no. Would you say that the main purpose of the jinn is to use the people's own superstitious beliefs to lead them into the fire? No, I wouldn't say this is the main purpose of the jinn. Uh, the jinn were created like human beings with an ability to choose to obey Allah or disobey Allah. Their main purpose is to worship Allah. That is the main purpose of the jinn. No? As Allah said, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنْسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Allah said that. He, he didn't create the jinn, but He said mention the jinn first. Nor human beings except for worshipping Allah. That is the main purpose of the jinn. Just as this is the main purpose of human beings. The evil among the jinn, like the evil among human beings, will try to draw others into their evil. And if a person is involved in some kind of corruption or whatever, they do not feel comfortable until everybody around them is sharing in that corruption. You know, the jinn are no different in that sense. So they try to draw people into corruption. They are themselves involved in sheer type corruption and they try to draw people into similar practices. I have several questions here on uh, how to recognize if a person really has some gin on him. Do you have to put this person through some medical test first or are there some uh, pure characteristics that will mark off a person as being possessed? No, I did address this earlier, you know, um, that personality changes, uh, voice changes, habits, uh, radical changes in habits can be among the signs, but it is not an automatic sign. Really all of the signs are also exhibited by people who have medical problems. So whenever one finds a person in a state, uh, the first what thing that one should try to do is to deal with it on a medical level. Having failed to deal with it medically, in other words you've identified that it is something beyond uh, medicine, then you look and focus in on chronic uh, recitation, etc. However, Anybody who is sick, whether it is biological or you may feel it is spiritual, to read over a person is natural. You know, as we have so many duas that Prophet gave us, as well as, you know, examples of the companions reading over people who are stung by scorpions, you know, righteousness. So the idea of, of, of uh, calling on Allah's help in dealing with our illnesses, this is something that we can just do automatically. But as I said, in terms of focusing, in the sense that we now have a sense that this is probably from a spiritual uh, source, you know, from the jinn, and we put all our efforts in terms of taking that person to somebody to have, you know, Quran recited regularly and really tackling it on that basis, we should do so after having checked out the medical side. Um, what must you do if you get a bad dream that you believe is from the shaitan? And a related question, what should one do or say if one feels the presence of a jinn? Or if one gets a really bad smell just out of the blue? Uh, the Prophet ﷺ had instructed us that uh, if a person has a bad dream, 
at night. They can either get, get up and make suraka. Uh, they can turn in their bed if they're sitting on the left side, turn to the right side. Uh, they can uh, spit, but it's not really spitting, but blowing and seeking refuge in Allah. Uh, these are among the things one can do you know, when one experiences a bad dream. Um, the other part of it? Uh, if you see that there is a jinn um, around. Oh, if you feel the presence of the jinn, it is possible for you to make the adhan. This is amongst the things that I mentioned some of the Sahaba did. You know, when they, there were presences, they felt uh, the jinn being present or whatever. They would make the adhan, say the adhan out, because Prophet said that the jinn will get away. Also, you know, there's a variety of different uh, <coughs> verses from the Quran, like Ayatul Kursi, the, the last uh, two verses of um, Al-Baqarah, you know, these may be recited as a means to clear the air, you know, when one finds oneself in a, an environment that seems to be, you know, spiritually evil or whatever. I have another personal question which I'll ask Brother Bilal to answer, but in general I'd like to advise all Muslims that uh, we must think good of people. You see something that you don't understand, don't assume that, you know, something is wrong here. Assume that, you know, there's something that you don't understand and check it out with the brother personally. Uh, somebody asked uh, one of our popular speakers one time, how come you shave, your, you know, you part of your face like that? You know, this is not right. And then the brother explained that the hair doesn't grow on that part of his face. You see, when, when they saw his face, they just assumed he's doing wrong, whereas they should have assumed some excuse for the brother. So the question again is about security issues and in reference to uh, a recent program that was held at uh, Madison Square Garden. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? <laughs> All right, we'll just move on to the religion question. <laughs> okay, can human beings tame him? and send them to harm other human beings. I have many questions on this um, uh, topic. Can we communicate with uh, jinns or negotiate with a jinn uh, at, at some time, uh, at the time of taking the jinn out of the possessed one? So you're taking the jinn out, at that time can you make some negotiation with the jinn? Please address these two questions. Okay, um, the one about Madison Square Garden, I should just mention that um, uh, there was a lecture given there back, I think, in the end of January. and. Um, I didn't attend, I wasn't able to attend, and I gave my presentation over the microphone, uh, or over the telephone, and then it was um, broadcast there. Um, the only thing I'd like to mention from it is that in the course of the lecture, I did mention something which is, I think we should be aware of, and that is that the practice of intermediation that is calling on others besides Allah. This practice, which had been widespread amongst Muslims in the, in the, up until recent times, with the revival of Islam in the various parts of the Muslim world, through the various movements and, and organizations, etc., you know, people have been moving away from this, realizing and understanding that this is in fact it is not acceptable Islamically to call on anyone other than Allah. And I just mentioned in the course of the lecture that there is an individual, and probably a number of other people with this individual, who is currently, you know, trying to revive this, calling back on others, calling back on others, meaning specifically calling on Prophet Muhammad in prayer. And that individual 
His name is Noah Hamin Keller. He's written a book called The Reliance of the Traveler. Right? It's translated the uh, work of one of the early Shafi scholars. But in the appendix of that book, he brings about ten pages, a ten page argument for justification for praying to Prophet Muhammad to direct prayer to him. You know, and I just mentioned it in the course of that lecture. It created a bit of um, um, a reaction there in, in, in New York because perhaps a number of people who were in the audience you know, were amongst his followers or those who are enamored by some of his ideas. But I felt it was my duty, you know, to clarify when I was addressing different issues that the Ummah faces today. I clarified that this was one of the modern attempts to revive an evil amongst the Ummah. You know, because our basic uh, foundation is that Allah alone is our Lord and He alone deserves our worship. And to call on anyone in prayer is to worship them. This is an act of worship. Prophet said, Dua for ibadah. That dua, when we call, make supplication. That is an act of worship. To whoever that supplication is directed, it becomes an act of worship to that person. So you cannot say, I'm calling on Muhammad Sallallahu and asking him to take my prayers to Allah, that really I'm worshipping Allah, I'm just asking Prophet to convey it. No. If you call on Prophet Sallallahu you have worshipped him. Because only Allah can answer our prayers as he told us, Call on me and I will answer you. There were the questions about the, the jinns, for example. Oh, okay. Now our question about the good jinns. We know that the jinns are divided into believers and disbelievers, just as amongst ourselves. Now what about the believing jinns? Uh, we know that the evil jinn are coming in, messing in our lives, and you know, uh, they are the source of a lot of the things that have to do with the ghosts and all these kind of things that you know, amongst the non-believers. Now, what about the good jinn? Can we have a good jinn that, you know, helps us out? You know, we hear usually when people start talking about jinn stories, you know, they always start talking about so-and-so who had a good jinn, you know, who would come and clean their house and do these nice things for them and all this kind of things, right? Can we have such things? No. This is nonsense. This is nonsense, right? Uh, the jinn are prohibited from interfering in our world. They are prohibited. If there were going to be good jinns helping us, Prophet Muhammad would have had an army of them. The Sahaba would have had armies of them. And we don't have any record of any of the Sahaba having good jinns, you know, coming around doing things for them and helping them, okay? So please believe that anybody who claims he has this good jinn helping him out, you know, is either deluded, because again, the jinn, in catching a person, you know, just like any satanic uh, uh, group or individual, they never come, they never show you who they are right from the beginning, right? They will come to you like a nice person, right? And, and give you, offer you something which seems to be good. And then when they have trapped you, then their real selves will show. Okay? This is the standard way in which cults operate. You know, individuals, deviant individuals, evil individuals will tend to operate in the same way. So it's not surprising that perhaps amongst the jinn, there may be some that will come to people, give them the impression that they're helping them, and then after they've drawn them into their circle, then it will get from them 
uh, the actual shirk or whatever, or, or help use them to misguide others. This question defends the use of uh, amulet or ta'weed. And it says these are given to people who did not read or write. Uh, also, it is always the verses of the Qur'an. As far as the numbers are concerned, this science of numbers developed during the time of Can you read that? Oh, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq. Mm-hmm. Imam Jafar al-Sadiq. And the main reason for using numbers was that if the amulet falls down, then it is only a number. Uh, also, people go to the washroom wearing amulets, so instead of wearing the verses themselves, it is just the numbers representing the verses. If numbers were not important, then why did Allah prescribe two attacks of Fajr, four of Azor, and so on? Your views on this, please? <coughs> the science of numbers was not uh, developed during the time of Jafar al-Sadiq. That's nonsense. First and foremost, the science of numbers was developed by the Jews. In the, in the number system, which is similar to ours, it goes according to the Abjad system. This was developed by the Jews. The use of numbers to have meaning was ancient. It was from the time of the Greeks. The, the Pythagoras and his followers, they, they were involved in numerology. Numerology is an ancient pseudo-science. So it is not the time of Jaffa, please whoever said this is nonsense, okay? Secondly, this, this explanation that it was used in the place of, of Quranic verses to avoid because it will be worn and taken into the bathroom and all that, that does not justify it. The early scholars prohibited it. They prohibited it. Because these numbers do not represent the verses that they claim that they represent. It is numerology, and numerology is among the forbidden sciences. They're pseudosciences, they're part of, you know, uh, fortune telling, and it's used for fortune telling. In fact, the person who uses numbers most recently is Rashad Khalifa. If you read his writings, he was heavily involved in this same abjad, you know, calculation. And from it he was able to claim that he determined the exact date of Yawm al-Qiyamah. You know, this is where this stuff leads to. So, uh, this issue of uh, numerology will say it has no place in Islam at all. Actually, in, in the book I wrote called the um, Quran's Numerical Miracle, Hoax and Heresy, you know, I went into a detailed chapter explaining about the history of numerology and its falsity, etc., etc. Uh, the other thing about uh, if numbers weren't important, you know, why did Allah prescribe two rakah for Fajr and four for the horse? You know, uh, please. <laughs> Let us not compare numerology to the numbers that Allah has set for our prayers, etc. You know, there's a vast difference, there's a world of difference. Because we don't take these numbers, you know, because actually, those people who are involved in the same kind of numerology, you find amongst the Ismaili Shiites, those who will say, okay, because Fajr was two rakah, Zohar was four rakah, Asr was four, and Maghrib is three, and, and Isha is, is four, but if you just say 
two, four, four, three, four, you have done your five times daily prayer. <laughs> yes, that is nonsense, you see. I mean, that is using the numerology of the numbers that Allah has said. No, the Surakah which has said, the Surakah to be prayed. Not to be said, to quote the number two and then it replaces prayer. So, in that way, yes, a person would have definitely deviated, you know, if they're going to understand the numbers and compare it in a similar light. Well, I have a report from the sisters area that some of the sisters are not interested, apparently, and so it asks all of the sisters to appear interested. Uh, now, if one has faith in Allah and constantly seek refuge in Allah, can that person be hurt by jinn? That may be in a haunted house or uh, by one who is possessed. Also, what if the faithful person in this case, let's say she's a woman, she can't make wudu because she's in her period, how can she protect herself? Well, I already explained that Prophet Muhammad was affected by magic. And in terms of maintaining, you know, an, 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 uh, an environment of remembrance of Allah around one, I would say Muhammad was the best to do so. You know, we are likely not able to do it as he did it. So if he did it and yet he was affected, it means that no matter how hard we try, there it is still possible for us to be affected. Because the reality is that no matter how hard we try, you know, we cannot be in that state of remembrance of Allah from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. So there will be gaps, you know, through the du'as, through the, you know, the different uh, instructions the Prophet gave us. Now these are things to help us to maintain a consciousness, put on your clothes, right side first, left, combing your hair, right, left, you know, put on your shoes, right. These are all things to help us to be conscious of what we're doing, remembering, to make dua. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, you know, we say, you know, the dua, oh Allah, you know, as you made me, my physical being uh, handsome, you know, make my character also, you know, all of these things to remind us, but it doesn't mean that we now become, you know, impervious, we cannot be uh, affected by evil forces. So, no matter how hard a person will try, the possible affection is always there. But what you have to remember is that nothing is going to come to us except what Allah has written for us. And that whatever has been written for us and affects us, it is not greater than we are able to handle. Because Allah told us, La yukallifullahu nafsan illa wuk'aha. So Allah has not burdened any soul beyond its capacity. So it means it's a trial for us to be patient with it. As we are patient, remember Allah, then Allah rewards us for that trial. And that trial becomes a means of purification for us for sins, errors, etc. that we have committed. Would you say that the jinns are similar in nature to the Christian concept of demons? There are similarities, but as I said before, you know, uh, demons for the Christians represent, uh, is represented by fallen angels. So they believe that they are angels that rebelled against Allah's command, and this is what made them into demons. And it's one of the part of their beliefs. Of course, for us, we don't believe that the angels disobey Allah's command. As Allah says in the Quran, وَيَفْعَلُونَ مَا يُؤْمَرُونَ They do whatever they are commanded to do. They cannot disobey Allah. How can you cure yourself if you don't know who gave you the evil eye? 
Well, the Prophet gave us uh, particular du'as to say, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the kam'a, which is the, the truffle, using that, using the water from it, uh, drinking it or whatever. And the Prophet gave us, said that this is a cure for evil eyes. We do what he told us, inshallah, with trusting in Allah, it will be a source of curing. You know, if we happen to know, as I mentioned before, that our seem to connect, um, somebody making some statement or whatever through our uh, illness or our state, then we may uh, seek to use the wudu water that they have uh, utilized and use that for ourselves in, in the hospital. If we don't know, then we just use the du'as as I mentioned. What can a person do if he mistakenly has done something that made the jinn angry? For example, cutting down a tree in which the jinns used to stay. And what do you do to prevent such a happening? Because nobody knows in advance that the jinns are staying around such a tree. Well, as I said, uh, the effect, I mean, what is going to come from from the, from the world of the jinn in terms of affliction to us. Uh, what is coming is coming. No matter what you do, you cannot stop it. If Allah is destined for it to happen to you, it is going to happen to you. I mean, there are some things, the general advice that we are told to avoid, which is, um, you know, pouring hot water down holes and urinating in holes and, you know, in the ground, etc. You know, we may find them, in, you know, if we are out hunting or whatever. You want to use the bathroom, then no toilet, so you just find a hole someplace, you can maybe look like a rabbit hole or whatever, urinate in the hole. No. No, you should not do that. And we're instructed not to do that. But um, other than that, I mean, you have to carry on with your life. I mean, if there's a tree in your garden that needs to be cut down, you cut it down. You don't start worrying, is there a gin in that tree, you know, if I cut it down. You, you, you can't, unless, unless there's clear evidence to you that there is some area where the jinns are. Right, then you have to carry on with your life as is and assume that the areas that you are in, the jinn are not. Yeah, yeah seeking, you know, uh, the sawis and, uh, you know, the sawas, that is the sawas, the muawas, the time, utilizing them and saying bismillah, you know, before we do things, you know, of importance. These are all among the things which help to protect us from uh, harming others. I have a request to announce the program coming up tomorrow, the time, the location and topic, and I happen to have a flyer here concerning that. The topic tomorrow is year 2000 madness, millennium bug, antichrist and who knows what else. Don't enter the next millennium until you hear this uh, terrific uh, triple lecture. Arrive at 4 p.m. tomorrow, the lecture begins at 5 o'clock and tomorrow we'll have more time to expand on the subject because we don't have the uh, restrictions that we have dealt with tonight. We're starting earlier and uh, we might finish a bit uh, later. Well, no, we can't finish later, can we? Uh, it is going to be at the Glen Forest Secondary School. Uh, a, um, if you pick up a flyer like this one, you will see a map on there. Uh, the school is located uh, two stops east of Dixie, south of Bonhamthorpe on Field Gate Drive. For more information, call the Dallas Center uh, sometime uh, in the early afternoon tomorrow. Yes, and uh, I, I really regret that I didn't say it earlier because we have no more people here. On Tuesday night at the Dallas Center in Toronto, we're going to have an important lecture for sisters only. The speaker on that occasion will be um, uh, Brother Omar Isa, 
Um, is the wife of uh, Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Philip. She's here uh, traveling with him and uh, she will be speaking on the topic companionship. Companionship. So, uh, so it should be a very important session for the sisters. Make sure you drop the sisters off and uh, you know spend some time around. Uh, maybe you can drop the sisters off, go to the general mosque and then come back to pick up the sisters. It will be at 7 o'clock Tuesday evening. 7 o'clock and by now we will be done. So. You can come in and pray Maghrib and take uh, the sisters home. Uh, question. Can one tame jinn and then send the jinn to harm others? Um, at, and also, at the time of taking a jinn out of a person, can you make a negotiation with that jinn? Okay, first and foremost, there is no taming of jinns. The, the jinns were submitted to Prophet Sulaiman. You know, this is... Uh, a miracle which was given to him and it was given to him alone. None of the other prophets even had that ability. And Prophet had also explained that on one occasion when a jinn had tried to destroy, he'd break his prayer and how he had uh, reached out in the prayer, the companions saw him reaching out and he had uh, subdued it in the sense that he had gotten it off himself and he had thought to try to tie it up, you know, in a pillar in the masjid so people would see it in the morning. And uh, then he remembered, as he said, the dua of Prophet Suleiman that Allah give him a dominion which should not be given to anyone after him. And then he refrained from doing so because this was uh, only in, given to Prophet Suleiman. Uh, so there is no taming of the jinn. People who are involved in uh, acts with the jinn involved in magic and things related to it do so through sacrilege. Basically, they, they involve themselves in different sacrilegious acts and then the jinn will uh, enter into some kind of a contract with them. As long as they do these things, the jinn may do certain things for them. Uh, in terms of a jinn coming out of somebody and communicating with the jinn, people have done it. But I, I warn people that uh, any kind of communication which takes place with the jinn, or a, or a jinn that claims to be possessing a particular individual, we cannot trust them. You know, Prophet said, described them, you know, as in the case of um, where one of the evil jinn had come to Abu Huraira and um, he had been caught. Abu Huraira had caught him, he was trying to take something from the Zakah and um, he offered him Ayatul Kursi. This is mentioned in the book, again, the uh, Exorcist tradition as well as in the book which I translated called Ibn Taymiyyah Zafir on the Jinn. Well known hadith. Uh, anyway, the Prophet described this evil jinn as saying, We told the truth, but he is a compulsive liar. I mean, this is the point. The evil jinn possessing anybody, they are compulsive liars. You cannot trust what they say. So, if, if a jinn even speaks, you know, some people go into society to ask them about, you know, why they came into this person, when they came, what's life like in the world of the jinn. You know, and I've even read books, people have written whole books of, you know, conversations with the jinn, you know. This, please, uh, believe that this is nonsense here, you know. You cannot trust what the jinn tells you, etc. You know, try to relate that now as, as fact. You know, they're involved in evil, you know, as somebody who you know is a, you know, is a particularly evil person, they're not going to trust what they say. You know, you're not going to go and ask them and then um, use whatever answers they give you and base any kind of, you know, Islamic practice on it. Is it possible for good jinns to help a person in some Islamic way? Apparently the questioner still wants 
some part of this and that Islamic will be stressed here. So, I, I, as I said, if it were possible for the jinns to help Muslims in an Islamic way, then the Prophet ﷺ and his Sahaba would have been the first to have jinns helping them. And we have no record of the jinns helping them. So anybody who comes along later, centuries later, people say, oh, he was a saint. Why? Because the jinns were helping him. No. Okay. No. Somebody asked me to mention that Sister Parveen has tickets for tomorrow's event, so if some of the sisters are interested in that, please get it from Sister Parveen. Now, two related questions. Could you please let us know once more about the treatment according to the Sunnah about Jim? Uh, according to? Yeah. And can you please continue your discussion on relevant prayers to be recited uh, that we could not finish before? <laughs> I mean, actually, as I said before, the time, the time that we had was uh, was limited, and ready to go through it. I mean, I had a whole uh, three pages of um, uh, of various du'as, etc., to be said at different points. You know, in the mornings, in the evenings, uh, before sleeping. Uh, but I don't think really time would permit me to go through each and every one of them. My suggestion, as I said, uh, is, is to get the book. Um, Fortification of the Muslims, you know, those of you, I mean, it's around, it's available. It's a very good collection and, and most of the du'as are there. And in terms of the prophetic methodology, you know, to go back through it would be to go back through, you know, a third of the lecture which I gave before. Is it wrong or is it a sin for a Muslim to visit a non-Muslim psychiatrist? If yes, is it wrong to become a psychiatrist or to study psychology? The basis of psychiatry and psychology is Freudian, you know. The ideas of Freud and others are based on evolutionary ideas concerning human beings. They analyze the animal and from animal behavior they then look at human beings and try to interpret human beings according to how animals function. Okay? So much of what they have to offer is nonsense. Relative, relative to human beings, much of it is nonsense. There is a portion of it which comes from observation, which is observation, for example, of child psychology, observing children and their behavioral patterns, etc., you know, the times at which they, you know, they exhibit certain patterns of behavior, etc. Uh, having knowledge of that in terms of rearing children, it's useful information. Uh, their interpretations of it, again, you have to be careful of, you know. A Muslim psychiatrist, uh, it's like a contradiction in terms, really. Uh, if we just, if we define psychiatry in, in a loose sense, you know, where it has to do with, you know, helping people, the psyche, and correcting the problems of the psyche, etc., you know, perhaps we can say, as from Islamic perspective, recitation of Quran, you know, some knowledge of, of people's behavioral patterns, you know, can help in advice, counseling of others. Uh, no harm in that sense. But psychiatry, you know, as it is known in, in the West, uh, for the most part is based on principles of kufr, disbelief, and, uh, and uh, 
interpreting human behavior according to the behavior of animals. Can you shed some light on the... Oh. Before I do that, there's one example that, I, that, that comes to mind, you know, of the same, the, the, the psychologists and psychiatrists, what they do. If you ask people here in the educational system, why is it that, I mean, as I knew, when I grew up, grew up here in Toronto, I went to Jarvis in town, uh, and um, I went to um, Northview Heights in, in, uh, in Willowdale. In both of these schools, this is junior high and high school, there we had to, all the boys had to go swimming naked. We had to go swimming naked. You weren't allowed to wear swimming trunks. Unless you had a doctor's letter, you know. Not your parents would not write them, it's not enough. A doctor's letter, so meaning that you have some kind of deformity or something, you know, you need to hide yourself, right? Otherwise, you had to go swimming naked. And the shower. Why is it they don't have separate cubicles that people can go in with the door behind, you know, shower and then get out? No, they have a big uh, room with just shower heads and everybody has to go in there sock naked. Girls separate, but girls all together sock naked. Boys, why? Why do they do this? From psychology and psychiatry. They say that the human, uh, this human uh, behavior of, of shyness, where people, when they're naked, they want to cover themselves and stuff and things. They say that this is some kind of psychological, you know, imbalance or something wrong here. Something wrong in the psyche, right? They're trying to correct it. Because why? Because when you look at the animals, you know, the dogs, the cats, the monkeys. The monkeys are not walking around trying to cover their private parts. No. <laughs> they walk around, you know, just letting it all hang out, right? So, this is why they want to have this uh, nudist beach here in Toronto. This is it's the same psychology. The same psychology behind the same concept. That we are animals. Why should we be shy? Shyness is a psychosis. You know, you need to be treated. So this is the it's a clear example of you know the, the, the mentality of you know psychiatry and psychology, you know, this where, where it has led the modern society. Can you shed some light on the dark practices of crystal ball gazers, palm readers, and fortune tellers? Do they communicate with the jinn, and uh, if so, how? Okay, much of uh, fortune telling, you know, is is uh, is hope. But there is an element amongst them, whether they do it through palm reading, you know, reading the tea leaves or whatever. There is an element amongst them that are in contact with the jinn. Prophet explained a lot, talks about it in the Quran, about some among the jinn that feel a listening of, from the heavens. They go up to the lowest heaven, heavens, and where the angels may be talking amongst themselves about things, instructions that they've been given by Allah to, to do on the earth, etc. They gain some information of what is going to happen in the future. They pass this on down to the fortune teller on the earth. And he is able to tell you something of the future. But the Prophet said, it is one truth mixed with a hundred lies. So what happens is that the fortune teller, they will, you come to them, they give you a whole list of things. This is going to happen in your life, that's going to happen, so on, so on, so on. Then you go away. What happens is that how our brain works is that these things end up in our subconscious. We don't keep it in our conscious. We're walking around waiting for these things to happen. No, it goes in our subconscious. When one of these things happens, then we think automatically, ah, oh, the fortune teller told me. 
and then you become a propagator for the fajr. Hey, he told me the truth. He told me, you know, he told me this is going to happen, it happened. But you forget, forgot the 99 other things he told you which didn't happen. This is, this is how our brain works. When things from the subconscious are reinforced by events in our lives, you know, then that becomes a conscious memory here. But the other things which remain in the subconscious, we forget them. So this is what they, this is what they operate on. So there will be an element amongst them that will be able to tell us some information about the future. Uh, those, of us, those that tell you information about yourself, which nobody else knows, you come to them all of a sudden, they're telling you how old you are, you know, where you live, what is your profession, you know, your wife, the names of your children. You know, people you find doing that, obviously they're dealing with the jinn, you know, directly. Again, uh, through your Karin, your Karin has all that information. If they're dealing with a particular jinn, they get that from that Karin and pass it on to the fortune teller and they can inform you. So, any form of fortune telling, any form of fortune telling is kufr. Prophet said, whoever goes to a fortune teller, out of curiosity, their prayers are not accepted for 40 days and nights. And if they go to a fortune teller, believing what the fortune teller says, then they have disbelieved in Islam. This is the statement of Prophet So this means that if we open up our, you know, newspaper, and we know there's a page, right, the page of the the horoscope, the horoscope page, the signs of the zodiac telling you for cancer and Libra, etc. You know, what's going to happen for you today, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. If you go to that page and start reading, out of curiosity, I don't believe it. I just want to see what it says. That is going to the fortune teller. That is going, that's how the fortune teller operates today. That's modern fortune telling. In the past, they didn't have newspapers, so you had to go down the block to the fortune teller, the local fortune teller, and he would run it down to you. Today, you can put it in a newspaper and you buy it, and then you're going to the fortune teller. So you have to avoid that page, avoid reading that. Okay, I have a few questions in Arabic. Um, can the jinn realize the human shape, or come in the shape of a human being? Age is possible. Uh, is it possible to convert with the jinn? And how does jinn know that the hakiko shaklohum in the kiyama? How will the jinn realize the shape on the day of judgment? And how does jinn realize the shape on the day of judgment? Uh, do they have a separate Jannah and Jahannam, or are they going to dwell with the human beings? So we have enough uh, uh, texts from the Quran, etc., which indicate that for the jinn, I mean, there's just one heaven and hell. There's not a jinn, heaven for human beings and a heaven for the jinn. And um, in terms of what form they will take on the Day of Judgment, they will take the form that Allah has determined for them. Uh, we will not have liberty to, to describe, we don't know what they look like in the first place, you know, we're not at liberty to try to describe what they're going to look like and then they're in judgment. Now, I have more than one question about sleeping. Uh, if a person is sleepwalking, does that have got anything to do with jinn or craziness? And uh, if a person talks or laughs during the sleep, does that have anything to do? Yes? Okay. Well, that's a repeated question. Sleepwalking, again, of course, has nothing to do with the jinn. It's a phenomenon which 
know, people um, experience it in various parts of the world. I mean, there's no particular evil con connected with it. Just like talking in the street. Now it is getting a bit late and sometimes we have to bring this to a close. I have some questions for myself which I have not entertained tonight because you can always ask me later. But I've concentrated on the questions for Dr. Phyllis because he'll be flying out inshallah on Wednesday morning. Uh, so let me uh, invite you to come out tomorrow night to hear him some more at Glen Forest Secondary School in Mississauga. And on Tuesday night to hear uh, the sister who will be speaking on companionship at the Dawah Center. Uh, please come out for that program as well. Anything else you'd like to add? One last word, anything final? Well, just, you know, with regards to the whole topic of uh, jinn possession, again, just to reiterate that what our responsibility is, is not to become so fearful where, you know, every, uh, every sound we hear, everything which seems out of place, you know, becomes uh, a jinn. Anything we've lost or some jinn has stolen it, you know. We, we try to avoid trying to put the jinn to explain everything that happens in our lives. So we should try to continue uh, to live lives, normal lives, uh, lives based on trust in Allah, you know, doing what Allah has commanded us, etc. And uh, we utilize whatever du'as and practices Prophet offered us to protect ourselves. And if we are tried, we're given some form of trial by the jinn, you know, through them affecting our lives, then we have to try to be patient with it, uh, trusting in Allah that this is a test from us. And in our patience, Allah rewards us and removes from us our sins. Here was one last one. Um, just very quickly, a brother is very concerned that uh, he wakes up in the morning and he finds three scratches on his leg. Yeah, and uh, he's wondering about that because there's no reason why he could have got those scratches from his bed. Uh, how do you interpret that? A cat under his bed. <laughs> so actually, um, I, I mean, I, I can't really say, you know, I'm not at liberty to say uh, this is not anything that I've come across where people say, you know, one of the signs to know that there's a gin in your house is you receive three scratches on your legs. You know, um, I would just say if you've been scratched, you know, get a band-aid, put it over it, you know, uh, utilize whatever the Prophet ﷺ gave us of du'as, read Surah Al-Baqarah in your home, as Prophet ﷺ said, one week Surah Al-Baqarah in the home, the, the, the evil jinn will not come there for some uh, three days and nights. So we utilize the things that Prophet ﷺ gave us, and inshallah we will be protected. Yeah, just one final thing, uh, Dr. Phillips will also be speaking on Tuesday night at the Hamilton Mosque on Stone Church Road. That's the mosque in Hamilton, Stone Church Road. So finally, I'd like to thank you all, brothers and sisters, for your patience uh, listening and for your cooperation with us. I know we had a hard evening in some sense because the overcrowding was difficult to deal with. Uh, but uh, you are patient. May Allah SWT reward you. Thank you also for your donations. And if you have uh, offered something in the way of Allah SWT, may Allah reward you. If you haven't yet, then there's still some time to do that on your way out. Yes?